0: Welcome to this wonderful building and event. My apologies for being late. Never join, never go in the circle line, the M25, the A34, or a station taxi queue. There's always some back door. I mean, a mistake. Apologies to you and to Gwyn. So this evening is a very important evening. Um, healthcare faces terrific challenges in the decades to come. Need and demand will go up, and there's no more money. There's an interesting question as to whether we should put more money into healthcare anyway, even if we had it, compared with social care or education or many other services that people in this audience are familiar with. And uh, Gwyn and I ran a workshop called Hellish Decisions in Healthcare. The term hellish decision is sometimes associated with a clinician deciding who to treat him first not treat a person, but decisions will have to be explicitly made about where do we put the money. To cancer or people with mental health? To children or to old people? To prevention or to, to treatment? To uh, dialysis or transplantation? And the team here, Gwyn and Mara, have developed uh, the word tool is, I think, uh, to prosaic for it, a method a method for the open and transparent discussion of these hellish options. And uh, they're going to present it to you, and then we'll have time for discussion afterwards. I think it's one of the most important tools. Uh, what we are seeing is we, we need to decide three things. Firstly, how much money do we give to can- people with cancer or people with mental health? Secondly, within, say, respiratory disease, how much do we give to people with asthma? with bronchitis or the sleep apnea, and then the third, and often the most difficult one, once you've decided how much money goes to one particular system of care, what's the balance, and uh, this tool doesn't solve problems, but by the open and transparent decision-making, brings out the ethical issues, engages the patients, so it is, in my view, a very, very important initiative. There are some other announcements I'll, I'll make at the end, but I think we'll probably just start with and I think there are fire and safety, and also um, has to be the LSE, um, LSE. In the event of disorder. There's the
1: uh,
0: public, public Meetings Act of yeah, 1908. So hopefully there will be some disorder and argument. If not, I will certainly start some. So, when and Mara. Okay. Over to you. Thank you very much. Phones and silent, please, but Twitter on. Um, hashtag star, so get going.
1: Hashtag LSE works. Hashtag... hashtag LSE works. This um, well, good evening. It, it, uh, it, like I say, thank you again sir, for coming along this evening. I'm very grateful to Samira for uh, coming to chair this uh, evening session and also for having the opportunity to work with him. To try and help address what me has rightly described as the big challenge the NHS face. Basically the same for health systems in virtually every developed country in the era of austerity and fiscal pressure. Also, uh, Mara Aroldi, now at the Levatnik School of Government in Oxford, who's worked with me for a long time in LSE in developing this approach, as is the key researcher who used this work in eating disorders in Sheffield, which we're going to talk about we're also working with Sean in the uh, work Sian Williams, Programme of Impress, in using it to look at how you could clinicians could frame priorities in setting guidelines for chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Um, what I'm going to so this is we the way the program's organised. I'm going to begin with introducing the approach with this title, Can Star Fix Broken Dreams? And the broken dreams I'm referring to are the fact that the most developed, what might be described as canonical methods for making judgments in healthcare about whether we should invest in treatment, unfortunately don't work very well in a time of austerity. The classic methods, and Muir has been key in one of them, which is evidence-based medicine, and the Reliance on Randomised Controlled Trials, And then the hard choices in rationing, using health technology assessment as applied by NICE, the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence, in evaluating new technology and coming up with a ratio of cost to benefits known as cost per quality. Uh, What I'm going to say is these work pretty well in a time of growth money, but don't work that well in a period of austerity. They're not designed for that, and that's what our approach is designed to do. And then Sean and Mara will talk about prioritisation guidelines for COPD. So, the the structure of my lecture is to start off with these uh, two ideas, which I call the empirical technical approach, and STAR, which is a so-so technical allocation of resources and this wonderful phrase that captures the problem you get into with using the empirical technical approach which is nicely described as horse and rabbit stew and why STAR enables us to handle this uh, unappetising dish the the, the recipes you take one horse and one rabbit and do them out I'm then going to show how the approach we've developed was applied by Mara to a care pathway in uh, the treatment of eating disorders in Sheffield. And finally, the developments. This is the for uh, the, high, the Higher Education uh, Fund, uh, which, is, uh, which we've got grant from to try and develop an extend start. So, in terms of um, the NHS, for a long period, from 2000, the Blair government's commitment to massively increase spending on the NHS. It's about a decade from 2010 of massive increases in annual real growth for the NHS. And the issue that you face all the time in thinking about how you spend money and manage services is difficult. You can't apply deliberative analytic methods to everything. And therefore what tends to happen is when there's growth money is you just keep things going with current levels of spending and you think about uh, the growth money you've got. So you've got growth money and you've typically got a set of bids and the scale of the bids far outbids the growth money. So there are two thresholds you'd use to decide whether you use the growth money on new spending, the bids. One would be whether it's effective, which have a well-designed method of randomised controlled trial. And then you have to recognise that just because something's effective doesn't mean you ought to spend money on it because it could be so hugely uh, expensive that the benefits you've got are not worth the cost, even given the growth money. Because in, in the future, you know resources will be scarce and you therefore regret having made a commitment to introduce something that's terribly expensive, which once introduced is very difficult to stop. Hence, we get into, this is what NICE does, You do an appraisal of cost-effectiveness. And what NICE is able to do is to rule out from the NHS things that are flagrantly not cost-effective. You can actually say, look, if you were to implement these things, you would seriously regret them in the years to come. As a result of that, the scale of the bids is significantly reduced, and you can use growth money to fund that, and you can also put growth money to increase the scale of what you spend. And these are the easy years that the NHS experienced for 10 years from 2000. Of course, we're in a completely different climate now. We've been going on like this since 2010. So the funding for current patterns is actually being eroded with pressures of uh, inflation, questions whether we actually do have real growth money or not. If you apply this process, the trouble is, even though you can reduce the scale of the bids to a relatively small uh, amount compared to where they initially start off with through asking whether they're effective or cost effective, they still you don't have any growth money to pay for that. Um, so if you wanted to fund innovation, you're going to have to take it out of that, and you also have little resources. Now the problem you get into there, and this is the empirical technical approach, is that we certainly are able to use the evidence and effectiveness and cost-effectiveness to look at where we've got evidence from randomised controlled trials. But if you look at the scale of healthcare, the problem is, this is what we call horse and rabbit stew, the bit of healthcare for which we have good evidence is described as the rabbit, and there's the much bigger scale, which is much of what goes on in healthcare, which we do not have evidence and effectiveness. So the difficulty you get into by using these well-developed canonical methods of the empirical technical approach is that you've measured the rabbit and you say to the NHS, look, you ought to implement this new uh, development. It's effective. It's not flagrantly cost-effective. But by doing that, you're going to have to stop doing something else. These are what we call the opportunity costs. And the whole nature of this approach, by having such exacting standards for the evidence that you use, means that you can't make these comparisons with what you're going to drive out. And this is the problem that the NHS faces, as NICE recommends that new technology be implemented. They can't work out the consequences of putting that into the NHS and cutting back on expenditure. So we actually need a way of handling horse and rabbit stew, in which the classical methods measure the small bit, the rabbit, but the horse goes unmeasured. Now one uh, way of thinking about this is that actually um, it's all very well in theory. I mean, all academics do is handle, develop sophisticated methods for dealing tractable problems where we have evidence. But I much prefer Kurt Lewin's argument that actually there's nothing so practical as good theory. So it seems to me inadequate to simply stay with methods that can handle issues where we have good measurement, but we can't use it for much of healthcare. And uh, Lord Darandoff's account of the history of LSE goes back to the beaver in its motto, talking about the beaver as a bridge builder between practice and theory. So I like to say that what we're doing in STAR is within what the NHLSE aims to do. So what we start off with, of course, with these canonical approaches is a view that when we look at healthcare, there's the bit which we have the rabbit, which we have perfect information from randomised controlled trials, then the rest of which we have no information at all. And our argument is that we engage stakeholders, including patients and doctors, and that's the best way to estimate value. And they can look at the evidence you get from these carefully designed randomised controlled trials and recognise that actually the outcomes that are there apply to patients that were excluded in the trial that don't apply in practice, and actually what the value as experienced for patients may be different from the clinical evidence as reported in randomised controlled trials. So they can reframe the evidence we get from randomised controlled trials that make sense locally. And by having that, you can also then think about how you value the relative value of other interventions which we do not have data for randomised controlled trials. So STAR, which is this socio-technical approach, um, it's organised around, around, around the idea that we use a model, The model tells us what data we need to collect. We can put the data in the model. We can do sensitivity analysis and see whether we can rely on these approximate data made from judgments. And our view is that if you are to make decisions on how you change the allocation of resources for healthcare, you ought to know three basic bits of information. What's the scale of an intervention? What value do you get from it? And what's its costs? And we see it's absolutely vital to engage uh, all stakeholders to be involved in this, the clinicians, the managers, the patients, and other agencies that would be affected in carers. And what we do is we explain the approach using visual models, we show these are the data that we need, and we use the models to process the data. So the, 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 set, the idea, the story that we tell the stakeholders is, as, as Samir said, there is no more money. Um, We get people in a room together, we look at a care pathway, and we say to them, look, there is no more money. It's up to you to think about how we can use the money we've actually got more effectively. I think it's critically important that we can engage all states, we can understand the difficulties and reasons why we need to change what we do. And it's important this is transparent and understood. Hence the importance for us, of having visual models, for so people to actually see what's going on and understand it. So for us, the key building block is the value-for-money triangle, in which we have on the horizontal axis costs. On the vertical axis, we have value. And we have these rectangles there of costs, which are based on the numbers of cases treated cost per case. And numbers uh, treated, for value, numbers treated, and it's the health gain which we're measuring effectively in quality adjusted life years. And the advantage of displaying things in that way is that when you look at interventions, if you look at these two different kinds of interventions, you can clearly see this is having, generating good value for money because you don't spend very much and get a lot of benefit this is relatively poor value for money spending a vast amount there and not getting very much benefit and what we do is we look at different interventions across the care pathway and we organise them in terms of slope so this is the most cost effective that's the least cost effective you start off with that one then, then B then C so we, genu- we look across the care pathway and we order the interventions in terms of their relative value the money for slope we start off with something that's very cost effective Something that's not very cost-effective in, in this scenario. I'm showing just three. Now, of course, what this tells us is that this one is much better than these two. But one of the key ideas that we try and get the stakeholders to understand is scale is very important. But if you want to change what the NHS does, although money's scarce, the scarcest resource that you actually have is the money, and effort and time to change what you do. So it's very important you focus that limited energy and skill you have to change what you do on the things that are going to make a huge difference. So although this generates the worst value for money, you wouldn't, given this care pathway in terms of getting more benefits, measuring quality adjusted life years, you wouldn't focus energy on that, you'd look on this. This is where most of the resources are going, and if you could could release some of that, you could massively increase that. So scale is very important, so the thing you'd focus on is can we move resources out from here into there, and if you were able to do that, of course, because you get so little value from there, such huge value from that, you end up with what we want to do in this period of austerity, which is to get more value at less cost. So, that's the principles we've developed. And the whole idea of this is that it gets out of the problem of using evidence from randomized controlled trials. You can apply it to all interventions in healthcare. It's based on engaging stakeholders, patients, and clinicians and managers, so we can understand what's going on and agree on change. And what I'm now going to do is show how Mara did this work in Sheffield for eating disorders. So, the way that worked is we had two one day meetings. We had the stakeholders involved managers from, this was the primary care trust at the time, patients and carers, public representatives, patients, providers and managers. And the data that we wanted to identify was for each intervention, numbers they treat, the costs and the benefits per person. And we, we needed to identify what the different interventions were across the care pathway. Now, when we use this in the NHS or in, Canada, or in any developed system, What you find is, this is the the basic building block, the value for money triangle. These are the bits of data that we actually need. And all health systems typically generate information on numbers, costs, but not at all on benefits. Now, the problem is, if you rely on the data that's there, and you wish to engage stakeholders in working out how you change what you do, and you get patients and doctors in a room, and you say, well, we want to work out how we change things, we can tell you how many we treat and we tell you what it costs, but basically we don't have a clue what the benefits are. You're not going to have a very productive discussion. Say, say we're going to say, as John McEnroe would say, you can't be serious. You know, how on earth are we going to redesign things if we don't know what the benefits are? So one of the key things we've done is to work out a way in which you work out what the benefits are. So one element in the uh, care pathway was intensive residential care. This is out-of-area treatment for women suffering from eating disorders. It's hugely expensive. Uh, the cost, total cost was something like £2 million. cost per case, about £120,000. vast amounts going into this. Each year, about 16 patients needed this treatment. Uh, but, of course, we don't know what the benefits are. So we've worked out a process which uses classical cost effectiveness analysis Estimate what that is, and what we do is first of all we use the, the standard approach of quality adjusted life years, which is to work out the quality of life, where that's anchored in terms of typically zero is dead and one means imperfect health. And in this case, what Mara did was to say, look, if you look at um, a mild eating disorder, this is what we know. Uh, from studies of different mental health conditions. This is how people assess what the quality of life is, ranging from some anxiety and depression being 70% of perfect health. Uh, obs- uh, obsessive-compulsive disorder with severe anxiety and depression being something like 70% of perfect health. Now, where does mild eating disorder fit on that, on that scale? They might have into groups They came up with a range, but basically... In the end, the consensus was that having a state of mild eating disorder is similar to some anxiety and depression. So we now need to estimate what the benefits per person is. And what we, need to do, what we do then is we say, well, what do we think would be the change in the health state before and after treatment? And that was worked out to be 0.61. And what would happen if they weren't treated? That would be 0.15, and we certainly didn't get 0.16. The question is, where do these numbers come from? And the way we did that was to say, let's think about what the different states of health would be, and these are the scores of the quality of life. What do we think the distribution would look like after treatment and after if they were not treated? And this gives us the numbers of the Differences in, in outcomes from these two approaches. So that gives us these t- numbers that go in there. And here we're just following the classic methods of cost-effectiveness. analysis. So we can now, using this process, we can work out what the benefits are of the intervention. We can complete the elements in the triangle. We can then do that for every intervention on the care pathway. Here we start with interventions in primary care. This is a local eating disorder service, and this one here is the residential intensive care. Um, So that accounts for, as you can see, that's very, very poor value for money. It accounts for 80% of costs, but only 13 percent of benefits. Now, the reason we were looking at eating disorders is because the mental health lead in Sheffield felt there was something wrong with the service. But you couldn't work out what it was. So by working through this process, we can indeed say, yes, you're right. It looks like you're spending far too much money on this service with very little benefits. Now, Mara, who was doing this when she fed in the data that had been generated was a troubled person because the stakeholders included a woman with severe anorexia and a mother whose daughter had died as a result of anorexia. And the mother's daughter and the woman with severe anorexia would, of course, have experienced this out-of-area treatment. Uh, But what this is suggesting is this is very poor value for money. She could cut back on what they got. But what's interesting is both of them were strong advocates that what you ought to do is to get money out of this very expensive kind of treatment into earlier interventions. The mother saying, if my daughter had been picked up early, she might still be alive today. And the woman's re anorexia saying, you don't want to get people ending up like me, you want to pick them up early. Um, And incidentally, the worst value for money is actually admission to acute psychiatric admission. But of course in terms of the effort that you're going to spend on sorting out this care pathway you wouldn't bother with that, there's so little resources and I can't even see it you are going to focus on that now what's particularly interesting about what Sheffield did through this discussion was to say that what we want to do is to move resources from here and we now realise if we carefully look at these 16 patients that typically have this very expensive out of area treatment we could care for quite a few of them in a local service. And if we can move resources from this very uh, poor value-for-money service into this one, if, say, we get six out from there, we would actually release money. So we could expand the scale of that, and we could put money into early interventions in primary care. So that is exactly what they planned to do. This was cut back, that was increased, and this intervention in primary care was increased. And this is a hypothetical scenario. In the hypothetical scenario, the benefits would be approximately double and the cost would be 1.4 million. You take out something like £800,000. Uh, now, because of all the uh, constant reorganisation, of National Health Service, it's not been possible for us to evaluate what's happened, but we do understand they implemented this plan and now fewer than 16 people are treated residential care and they have changed things in that way. And what's interesting, they've designed a contract with this local service to say, we will give you extra funding to treat these patients, provided we're able to reduce the number of referrals. It's very expensive for an out-of-area treatment. Um, so what I've done is to describe the ideas of the STAR approach and how it's different from the empirical technical approach, give an example where it was applied in one local service. I'm just going to talk about the developments Um, that are being financed through the HIVE grant. We're doing work at the moment with uh, Samir Gray, the Betu Value Healthcare, to to work with them to use this approach. We've got a grant, National Institute for Health Research grant, to work on diabetes in North London. And Mara's leading research in Bradford, funded by the Health Foundation, to look at dementia. A key thing for us to do is to train people to do this work and we're working with the Northern uh, British Support Unit and the Health Foundation have a training program for that. And we need to develop an easy to use tool and Samu Gray introduces a very good software firm in Kuna. We're developing that it'll run an iPad. And if you want to know more, these are the websites and do contact me. And it is now
2: with pleasure I hand over to Sean and Mara. Yeah, Thank you. Hey. I'll start sitting here just to explain how we are doing this. We are uh, presenting a, a collaboration between the LSE and Impress, and uh, Sean here is representing Impress, which is a collaboration between primary and secondary care physicians with an interest in respiratory medicine. So we are uh, is a is a double act. So Sean will start by telling you about COPD and this organization and what was the problem they had then I will chip in with the more nerdy stuff of how we try to help them using this approach. And she will conclude by uh, telling us more about like, what, did they, what did they get out of it and what were the insights and how does it, did it feel coming from a clinical perspective encountering this academic that come from this ivory tower, what was helpful. Thanks, well.
1: Yeah, yeah if you just click it. That, no, 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 it's the clicker. We, you have oh, I've got the clicker, begin. yeah, oh, this is sabotage on <laughs> you. It's a stress test, it's okay, there you go. Thank you. Yeah, no, no, yeah. Come on. no, 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 this, this one moves it on, okay. and that's the point. Okay.
3: Yeah. Thank you. So, Sean Williams and, and Mara, um, thanks for listening. So I'm going to tell the story of COPD and uh, the, the clinical view of value. I need to explain a little bit about IMPRESS and also COPD. So IMPRESS, as Mara said, is a joint initiative between the two respiratory societies in the UK, the Primary Care Respiratory Society and uh, the British Thoracic Society, and they are the two societies that represent and guide clinicians who care for patients with lung disease. And that's been going since 2007, so we've been on quite a long journey and you need to understand some of the background to understand why we were ready the other thing is to know about COPD. So until about 10 years ago, really nobody ever talked about it. But it's a significant problem for patients, for their families and also for the health service because it leads to a lot of demand for health services. So this is an informatic from the European COPD coalition and you can see that by 2030 it's expected to be the third leading cause of death in Europe yet quite a lot of people still don't really know what it is. And and it's a disease in Europe mainly caused by smoking and it leads to symptoms such as breathlessness, wheeze and tiredness and it's it's a very disabling condition and many people die from it or with it. Let's go back and think about what influences clinical decision making and um, I'm starting here with the photograph and and the GP I've taken photograph from is here so Most of us as patients would um, regard the relationship between the doctor and patient as sacrosanct and the most important thing. We want the very best from the clinician when we're in front of them. And equally, the clinician wants to give their very best to the patient. And traditionally what that's meant is there's been an antipathy to discussions about money. You know, don't bother me with money. This is a discussion. I've got to get the best for my patient. But as Gwynne was saying, in times of austerity that becomes difficult and one of the things it means is that that, that clinicians don't think about those other people, the opportunity costs, who else is out there who might benefit from care. The other thing that's going on is is the focus on medicines. Again, if we're ill, we often expect to get a medicine. Um, We take prescriptions. Here's a bunch of respiratory inhalers. There are many on the market, but everybody knows they exist because there's quite a lot of promotion about them as well. So if you just take some 2010 figures, you can see that the pharmaceutical industry spends a significant amount of money promoting medicines to clinicians. What that means is there's quite a lot of discussion about medicines, and typically there's no single body who's giving an equal amount of noise in the system about non-pharmacological intervention there's no single body that will do that lots of that money goes on on detailing it which which is a sales representative going to see an individual clinician or on meetings and in respiratory that's pretty important because the top five drug costs to the NHS at the moment are all respiratory inhalers. when we started the work in Impress there was a a statin for cardiovascular disease in there but that came off patent so that, that dropped out of the list because it became cheaper and sometimes that means that some of the effective medicines, but perhaps which don't get promoted so much, don't, don't get used as much. So that's just a bit of the, the background um, in terms of what influences and decisions go on in clinicians' mind. When we joined, we had two societies coming together, those representing general practice and those representing often hospital community-based specialists. And lots of the questions to begin with are about who? Well, who's the right person to do this? Who do you see? Well, I see the really severe people. Well, so do I, actually. What do you mean? Well, actually, I can see people with quite severe disease and I can manage them well. Really? I thought only we saw that. And there was a lot of identity crisis and discussion that went on. And as a result of that, there was a, a, a significant change in the trust and respect between two bits of the clinical system, if you like. And that respect and trust is absolutely essential to, to, for the readiness to cope with a discussion about STAR and about what you would, might do less of. One of the things which um, the nerds amongst us quite like is, is information about programme budgeting. So, um, as Gwynne said, in times of austerity, things change and we need to understand the constraints. So this is a pie chart showing the, the breakdown of expenditure on the different chapters, that's to say the different disease areas in the NHS. And of course, there you see respiratory at £4.69 billion spent in 2012-13. And you might go, that's quite a lot of money, but if you're in respiratory, you might go, oh yeah, there's a lot more in cardiovascular, even more in mental health, help me out a bit of theirs. But you can imagine that's not an easy conversation to have and really quite difficult to achieve. You're better off starting with the area you have some control over. So in respiratory, it's coded into three parts. There is other, which the title suggests that's not going to be an easy one to investigate. Very big
0: very big problem. Very
3: big problem of other. Um, and um, asthma, which is a lot of people being treated uh, with not that many choices between interventions. Or COPD, where there are fewer people who tend to be more expensive because they tend to use hospital services at some point and with quite a choice of interventions that could be used. So when we started to look at things, we started to focus on on COPD, but we did also, back in 2010, start to ask the question of clinicians, well, if you had the choice, uh, if, if, if you wanted to think carefully about the interventions that you currently deliver to patients... Would you say there's any underuse of effective interventions, any overuse, any misuse, or any undercoordination, which is a classification by John Overtvite? And you can see, this is a list I won't go through it all, but quite a lot of those was an acknowledgement that prescription and prescribing weren't really used necessarily in the right way, and there was probably underuse of things like pulmonary rehabilitation, which is an exercise and education program, psychological support, under coordination with, with social care. So quite a lot of things where people felt they would really, if they had a chance, they would, they would do more of. So again, this was background building up to the introduction of, of the STAR analysis. If we just take one of those, um, again, coming back to Gwyn's idea that you need to have, you haven't got enough energy to change lots of things, so you either have to have something that's very simple to change or a really big thing and worth spending your energy on. There are two sorts of prednisolone tablets, a steroid tablet that gets used. There's the white and the the red. And there was a six-fold variation in price at the time we looked at this. And clinicians actually said, well, I don't really think there's a difference. In fact, some people argued it was probably better to go for the cheaper one in terms of its absorption into the system. And so... If you just look at what one strategic health authority at the time did, it just took that evidence and started to see how it could change. And it said, well, look, if we did switch people, we got everybody to start prescribing the white, you'd start to see um, a difference. And in fact, they then discovered that you could go a lot further than, um, than that had, had been got. They saw money in the system, and that would be quite an easy thing to fix. Meanwhile, some other colleagues in London were starting to say, OK, well, that's all about prescribing stuff, but what about all those other interventions that we get involved in? And they produced, um, and this was done in London, I was part of this too, um, if you like, uh, looking at the relative value of different interventions. So you've got, looking back at the cost effectiveness data, you've got flu vaccination, £1,000 per quality. you've got stop smoking support. Uh, fully evidence-based at £2,000 per quality, and so on up the list. And the most expensive being triple therapy up here at a maximum cost of about £187,000 per quality. Now, there's some issues with that, and um, one of the issues is that you can see that huge range there with triple therapy, and that's because for some patients it's, it's cost-effective and, and, and it's good. People with pretty severe disease, but for others it really is typical um, pattern is that it's used in people who might benefit from other things. So, so I'm going to hand over to Mara um, to see how then we can use, start to be more sophisticated in our analysis and to consider other things. Well, don't go far. Okay. All right.
2: So when when, uh, Shan came to us, she came with this uh, value pyramid, and uh, the problem they had was there is a guidance out there on COPD, and it was an updated one, that mentioned that those things are all good things to do. Uh, But the the, the feeling was that out there, managers in healthcare and also clinicians, I want to improve how things are done in my particular locality, in my community. I can't change them all to a gold standard. I need to start from somewhere. And if I look at this pyramid, it seems that if I look at flu vaccination, it's affecting many people, and there is a good cost per pulse, so should I do that? But at the very top, I have people that are in immediate need. So how do I set an order of priority? Not so much in terms of what is most important to do, but in terms of if I need to change, where should I start from? If I want to have a big impact, where should I start from? And uh, this pyramid didn't quite help them to have that kind of a discussion. They thought that STAR <coughs> helped... Impress primary and secondary uh, specialists to send out some guidance of uh, you might want to consider the following um, intervention as the one that you want to start from. And what was interesting and different from what was done in eating disorder is that these specialists don't have responsibility for a particular population. So they are the expert, they know the literature, they can interpret it. But when we ask them how many people in a community present with this particular need, and they couldn't come up with a number. They know how many they see per week in their clinic, but they don't know how many of those people are in Bradford. So one, the first thing that we did, and it was quite hard to do, was to come up with an archetypal population. Like, let's suppose that you have a community of about 300,000 people, <coughs> the average size of a clinical commissioning group or primary care trust. How many people do you expect have COPD? how many of them have COPD but don't know they have it? How many are, uh, have a mild or moderate severity? How many are very severe? Just counting the number was very illuminating because people don't quite know that. But there is evidence there of prevalence of uh, actually recorded cases so you can compare how many you should expect with how many you actually observe. So we were trying to make sense of the evidence that was there. and use it for a particular hypothetical community, just to make it quite, um, uh, just to give substance, and it looked real. And for this hypothetical uh, population, we said, well, there are uh, a certain number of people with COPD, how many of them are undiagnosed, and we estimate about 6,000, how many have mild moderate disease, 3,000, how many severe disease about 2000. And it, it started to feel real. And then we said, if you need to issue a guidance for somebody who is managing and is responsible for this population and has this guidance from NICE of all the good things that you should do and you need to change, where should you start from? And we, look, we started looking at the evidence. So what we were doing is evidence informed. So we look at the evidence that is available. There wasn't evidence about everything And the evidence is quite mixed when you look at it. Like the um, analysis is for different follow-up periods. So this is very cost-effective, but the analysis is done over two years. This is done over six years. Can you compare it? So although you use the evidence, you need really to pull in the clinical judgment to make sense of it. So I will uh, ask Sean Sean, to describe how, because I I just asked the question. They did the hard work. I just said, can you bring to me uh, how many people are there and they did the work? So I I was there to ask the difficult questions. And among the difficult questions, can you bring me the evidence base? You are the specialist here. Primary care, secondary care, you know everything about respiratory. Can you provide the evidence of what works in practice? And this is the fun they had. I won't go
3: far. Okay, so... We, and we came up with all sorts of ideas. We said, we don't want to do COPD, we want to do breathlessness, because that's how we think we should think about things. And then um, somebody said, well, is there any evidence based on breathlessness? And we said, well, no, actually, well, then you we have to go back to COPD. So we, we had to do a lot of toing and fro One of the things that we'd discovered was the NICE guideline um, now. That's, that's the Bible. But if you look, this is this this is a document, um, six hundred and seventy-three pages in it. I'd love to have brought the whole thing. And we did. We printed it all out and we went there. And at Appendix M, which if you've really got the stamina, you will find on oh sorry, you will find on page five hundred and sixty-one, you find the cost-effectiveness data. So we did find it and we showed it to people, of course nobody'd ever, ever looked at that. And they were all really interested and staggered. And then, of course, we had to go to Mara and say, what exactly does it mean? Um, tell us, because this, this appears to say that sometimes triple therapy is one hundred eighty-seven thousand pounds per quali, but nice as the cut off thirty thousand pounds per quali. How how can that be true? So people got really interested in it. Um, we also had. A lot of information that we'd pulled together ourselves beforehand, so we had already wanted to investigate pulmonary rehabilitation and find out what the effectiveness and the cost effectiveness was of this. Pulmonary rehabilitation isn't known to many people in the system, let alone a broader public audience, but um, it's, it's a programme normally run over six weeks, twice a week for an hour or two hours of time, um, run by physiotherapists and other clinicians, a programme of education, and or physical activity, and you can see that can be done in a number of ways. It's often done in, in, in gyms, church halls, without much kit. You may have exercise bikes, but you may not. And it's typically run by physiotherapists, and that's another fundamental fact, which is services which are not led by doctors have never tended to get research grants or research money to be able to prove their worth. And so... Um, you often don't get as much evidence. In the case of primary rehabilitation, though, there has been some very good cost-effectiveness evidence that's that's been found, and so we could build that into the system. And that's what we did. We looked at those things. But then when you ask people about cost, well, how much does it cost to run one of those programmes? Some of the GPs were quite good, but on the whole, people were even more bamboozled about those questions than they were about how how many in the population are there. So, that's the background, and um, I think one of the things that uh, we'll see here is that getting to this, using these visual scales, there were an awful lot of people doing stuff like this, you know, so Mara would say, well okay, if that's there, where would you put this then? Oh no, why put it here? And a lot of people going up to boards and stabbing on boards and and rubbing out somebody's writing and putting it somewhere else. It's a very interactive process.
2: So this is uh, one of the, uh, similar to the rectangle that you saw in Gwynn's presentation. But we want to illustrate here how you arrive uh, at this after going through this process. So what you have here is the impact on the population. And on this horizontal axis, you have how many people would benefit from, from that particular intervention. And here we needed the archetypal population. So how many people will benefit from smoking cessation? So how many people do smoke? And uh, it seems like an obvious question, but actually we had to do some back-of-the-envelope estimate because uh, people don't know exactly how many people are smoking and might take up. Like you have percentages. But this is trying to make sense of the evidence that is available and what does that evidence mean for a particular typical population. And on the vertical side, we were trying to make sense of the clinical evidence of effectiveness. So what this uh, debate did, as you can see here, we don't have quality. Here we did some kind of, um, we use expert judgment. When quality were available, we plotted it, and then we used it as a benchmark. So there were another intervention. We asked, do you think that this other intervention, on average, is more or less beneficial than the one for which we have more hard evidence? Can you convince your colleague that it's more or less? And there was a lot of back and forth, and it was like peer challenge, and it's a consensus view. But those were experts in respiratory medicine with, not, with no particular interest in a budget. They were trying to advise colleagues um, in, the, in the practice there. And what was powerful about this was that it was combining a clinical perspective, how much uh, benefit will the patient in front of me receive from this intervention with a population perspective. So you have here this blue line. This is smoking cessation for patients that have severe COPD. If you succeed in convincing somebody with severe COPD to stop smoking, You have a very big benefit, but it's very, very difficult to convince somebody with severe COPD to stop smoking. So you didn't see many of those. Whereas it would have been easier to convince them to join a pulmonary rehab intervention. So you can see a bigger number and there was a discussion of what was the benefit at that stage of the disease. So it think that smoking cessation should be absolutely um, beneficial, but for people with severe COPD, the belief of the doctors in the room was that at that point the disease was so advanced that pulmonary rehab had a, quite a close uh, benefit as smoking cessation. So it was about articulating this tacit knowledge for the particular patient that you might encounter in practice. And it was done based on expert judgment informed by the evidence base. So we didn't just take a number and plug them in. And uh, it's worth mentioning that in this uh, chart, we have a, a flat line here of overprescribing. So the number of people who are at the moment uh, taking some medication, but actually they don't receive much benefit from it because they shouldn't be on that medication. And in the room, we had a representative from a, pharma, from a pharma company that is selling one of these medicines. So we expected a lot of challenge in the room because that was pointing in the, in the direction that in practice we should prescribe less medicine. But actually, this one was unable to argue against that because the evidence of overprescribing was there and evidence of how much overprescribing is taking place in practice was of this scale. So she couldn't really object to that. And when we combine this with the cost, we found that for this intervention, in the example of the severe COPD, we did something similar, mild, moderate, and undiagnosed, but we can, you can find that in the report. The relative slope of this value-for-money triangle, what, the, what we have here in the vertical slide is the area of this re, those rectangles. How many people times the benefit per person? This is what goes on this vertical line. So if I go back here, this is the largest rectangle, the red one, and it shows up as the longest vertical line. And this is the cost. But the slope of these uh, hypotenuse is very similar. So in terms of value for money, they didn't come up as that different for this particular population of patients. But if you want to change one thing that has the biggest impact, if you want to put your best manager to sort out something, what came through was that pulmonary rehab had a high potential to impact the health of this uh, population. And actually, you should have put also your best manager because it was the most expensive one. So both for a cost perspective and the benefit perspective, you should pay, pay close attention to this particular intervention. And here, we estimated the amount of saving that you could do. So maybe this intervention is expensive, but if you stop this prescribing, you funded it. You find the money to do that. And again, we had this representative of this pharma company that was sitting in the room. She didn't even try to object to this. She said, like, oh yeah, but this is informed by evidence, but it's not totally hard evidence. So although the slope is similar, it send a message in terms of scale. And going back to, you have these recommendations, 20 things you want to do, where should you start from? We saw that taking them through this process provided some insight. Which are summarized by him
3: so that 's just, just a slide summarizing some of that, which are messages we 've put out right across the health service, and we 've had very positive responses actually. I think people have felt that it may be what they, what they 've believed themselves, but they haven 't had the arguments behind them to say it, and um, There has been a closer looking at prescribing by an awful lot of people and in different parts of of, of the UK. And certainly now I think more people are comfortable with having a conversation about cost-effectiveness. So these are the conclusions about severe COPD. We also had conclusions for undiagnosed patients and also those with mild-to-moderate disease. So to answer the question set at the beginning about, well, how does STAR help engage clinicians in prioritisation? It, I think, allows a fair evaluation of both medicines and non-medical intervention and and, and medicine intervention, pharmacological intervention. And that seems very obvious, but typically in the health service, the budgets of medicines are managed separately in hospitals and in the community. Uh, Different people manage them, and and they're not necessarily brought together with with the non-pharmacological intervention. You have to look at the population too and the scale and that isn't easy to do necessarily. People talk in terms of rates and they talk in terms of percentages but you want to know how many people does that mean? How many people does that mean? And, that's, uh, and, and often public health departments don't give you that figure and they can, they can but they often don't start from that point. It starts to get more people to say who am I responsible for and, and who am I not seeing? So we had a conversation with a a colleague recently and she said you know what now when I'm on the bus and I'm going between my appointments I look out the window and I see people in the bus shelters and in outside doorways I see them smoking and now I think should I be responsible for them are they part of my job my day job and 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 that's That's quite scary because there are an awful lot of people out there with behaviours which might cause them harm. But equally, it's a really important question to be asking. You don't want to lose the power of the individual consultation, but you can't not think about those other people out there. In in particular for COPD, it meant that um, everybody reached the conclusion that smoking is a treatable dependency. Some people now talk about it as a chronic disease that begins in childhood. And therefore if it's treatable and if you like it's a condition, it's a disease, then it's a clinical responsibility. It's not somebody else's business. It's not just about regulation. Physical activity and pulmonary rehabilitation are also effective and therefore the messages we've been giving out and people have been changing behaviour across the country are to start making sure that those services are available for everybody who would benefit and that there are referral systems in place. And the people begin to understand now the value of prescribing, people didn 't know um, quite a lot of the information, certainly not appendix M of the nice guideline and the message isn 't about stopping doing it, but it 's about prescribing responsibly Thank
0: you. Well, a number of very important principles emerged uh, there first about the evidence and the evidence for non-drug interventions we are, I, part of my job is something called NHS Choices and our plan is of a formula of non-drug interventions and these will be built into either your prescription or your, um, your uh, letter from the hospital a lovely study in the Lancet about benefits of hand exercise of people with arthritis we spent a fortune on medication but I'll bet not, not one in a thousand gets this so we're we're going to act much more on them on that secondly the, the language it's used for you to reflect on optimized, not maximized, it's all the with trade offs and balances and competition and then this interesting issue how many of your clinicians are going to be clinicians it's a very important study a paper from the academy of medical royal colleges um, called protecting resources promoting value if you waste resources Other patients will be denied treatment. And the the concept of resource stewardship is now going to come from uh, the president of the academy is now chair of the council of the general medical committee, so stewardship is there. And it's also very important, and it might be good in discussion, see, it's not just about the money, it's about the balance of benefit to harm. The more treatment you do, the more harm you do. Um, So by reducing some treatments... All healthcare does harm as well as good. So, these are lots of very important issues as well as the practical application. Now, what I'd like you to do, I'd like you to um, narrow your thinking. Um, I don't want you to think, should there be more money in healthcare? Someone else's discussion. Nor should there be, oh, we should put more money into cancer or mental health or something. Or that we should move money from one disease to another. I want you to really focus on. A condition, a a subgroup of the population that you know about. Perhaps you've got a condition yourself, or you know someone. So I'd like to now just turn to your neighbour, and for two minutes tell them about the condition you're thinking about, and reflect on what you've been hearing, and then we'll take comments and questions, and if there aren't any comments I'll just point at people (laughs) to to speak. So I want to now not think of these huge things about how much we spend healthcare, but to focus on People with headache, or people with breast cancer, or people with um, diabetes, and um, reflect on this. But just turn and introduce yourself to someone um, if you know, know the person beside you, and have two minutes reflecting on what you have been hearing, and then we'll take feedback and discussion. Thank you. Okay, turn to your neighbour now and introduce yourself and talk. At some point,
1: do the LSE works? Yes, I will yeah. okay, so. No, it's someone else. I don't know where she... The black is. one. She be a pain. Yeah, she's very... I feel like I'm a journalist ever since I agreed to do this. It. So what you uh, say? What What is this? Oh, God, that's in mine. I worked it out. Um, investor Protection transatlantic oh, of Transatlantic Trade Investment Commission. Yeah, no, I sure. people remember a lot of what we said
0: seconds ago. <laughs> okay, stop talking. You must stop talking now. So, um, I think it would be helpful if uh, you would say a little bit about uh, yourself when you speak, so we can see your perspective. So, what questions or comments would you like to raise? And I there's no problem with I just point it. Not. But here's the first one. Yes, please. And uh, could you use that so we... Uh, there Thank you.
3: You mentioned early intervention. You mentioned early intervention in the case of anorexia. What form would this early intervention take, please?
1: GP Yeah.
2: So we, this is uh, the, what were taking place in uh, in Sheffield, and we we're talking about simple things like uh, um, what the GP could do and actually some trained nurses, In particular, w- women in Sheffield said that they really, really liked this uh, support early on to understand their condition, and one of the things they liked is, was that there was no stigma because they could walk into a GP clinic without being uh, identified as a patient with eating disorder, and that was very effective because they tended to go because they could have been there for anything, and uh, it was very, very effective. According to the women and their experience, and other interventions were intervention from the voluntary sector, and the voluntary sector was uh, um, mainly uh, was was dealing also with severe cases. Uh, but they had a lot to offer to mild and moderate cases. And uh, again, the experience for women who participated said that being there and meeting uh, the parents and other patients that were earlier or more ahead of their condition helped them to understand their condition and act upon it. But the key thing is uh, for uh, my understanding for it was for these women to seek for help and uh, making it very easy and unstigmatized was, uh, for them, the important aspect. So this is why they were embracing the idea of investing more in uh, earlier interventions.
0: So we've had two conditions in which early intervention had a good triangle. It doesn't always work that way as events in meeting... This is kidney disease. and So that's early intervention and then people get renal failure and have dialysis or transplantation. And there were some people there saying, well, you know, all this move for early detection isn't by, by evidence, and actually the best value is transplantation. Uh, so sometimes it's counterintuitive that you think it might be early. But, but, but there's alcohol, of course. Yeah, there's alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> probably, well, yes, this uh, lady
4: Hi. um, We were saying that one of the things that we found in our various jobs, I guess, is that some people have um, sort of multiple compound behaviours. So, for example, high levels of mental health, but also high levels of smoking. And it's unclear, um, like, I was just wondering what happens if there's no one pathway, there's multiple pathways, because there are multiple issues they're dealing with. Has there been any research on how, what the best intervention is when there are multiple issues going on?
3: We've just been talking about this actually with, um, in relation to something like breathlessness, which can be caused by obesity, can be caused by smoking, can be caused by lack of physical activity, right. anxiety. So a whole range of things can cause this one symptom. And um, typically evidence-based medicine doesn't help because it's, it's focused on single conditions. And so there isn't really very much guidance. So it's really a whole new piece of work that needs to be done to say, to bring together experts from a whole variety of fields to do do the exercise together. But the challenge will be that there'll be even less evidence available. When we've done work on breathlessness, just trying to count how many breathless people there are in the population was really quite tough. But it's definitely the work that needs to be done because that's, that's real life. I mean, that's much more likely to be the case in people having a single condition.
0: Again, the principle of population health care. It's people with four problems or people with five problems or people with breathless that. So it's shifting the debate away from primary and secondary care to populations, this method brings out. Yes, the other hands... Yeah, we'll go along the row here,
1: shall we? Can I just say that um, I think Sean didn't do justice to. I mean, th- this, this was not just an approach that was tried impress you've come up with guidance as yeah. to how people can manage breathlessness and the discussion we were having earlier was how this relates to, it's a paper by Trish Greenhalgh and others in the BMJ going for real evidence based medicine to deal with the complexity, the complexity you're describing and the point being that it's actually for most of healthcare people have more than one thing wrong with them so having this classical, again what is it, canonical thing based on you know the diagnosis, this is the intervention if you know the diagnosis that's all. Right. Right, but getting there is complicated. But there is this stuff on the Impress website that talks through the breathlessness approach, which we think is the way to take this forward. Yes.
2: Um, hi, thank you all uh, very much. Um, I was very impressed by sort of the simplicity of
4: what it looks like, because it's easy to interact with if it's simple and it's just elegant. And um, I was wondering... Because you were with a particular group that was very interactive and working on this, what has been done to sort of upscale this and to make sure that it's not just pockets of best practice that you have now, but that it does like expand out to people that maybe weren't
3: in the room and still need to work on this? Well, I can talk from the impress point of view. We've um, because it's a national organisation, so with national societies, we have. I suppose spent more time explaining what the conclusions mean and how we got there. And um, the next stage would, I think, be to get more people to want to facilitate a local workshop. So Noel, who's here, has, has definitely tried this approach locally, where you get your own stakeholders and your own evidence about the costs locally and your and real numbers about how many people there are. And you, and you test it again because... by by going through the exercise and sharing it, you learn a lot about what other people in the room know that that you didn't know. And and, there were very simple things just about how frequently do people with COPD go and see a GP? I mean, you'd think that would be common knowledge, but it's not. So those sorts of questions aren't complicated. You just need somebody to ask them, and then people can share that understanding.
0: There's about 100 problems the size of COPD or eating disorder, so we need to think how we scale it all up.
2: Yeah. And is there any like
4: measuring or reporting of the benefits that then flow from there?
1: I mean, I mean, the trouble is we don't. This this is an unknown. I mean, it's an unknown thing. But I, our starting point is essentially that in, in, none, none of what goes on in healthcare is a desi- well-designed system. It's evolved over time. I mean, so mirrors, you know been responsible for the NHS atlas of variation that shows, uh, as every country do, enormous variation what goes on across places. So our, our view is that if you get the stakeholders together to get patients with a particular condition, I'm taking, simplifying a problem here, and you think about how you really ought to design it, then there must be scope to do things better.
0: This is a... You see, the, the, the STAR team can't do this. This is people who are responsible for paying and managing. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, this is providing the information, but there's the there's salary of two consultant positions there. So, either we take out two consultant positions or we do something about it. Mm-hmm. So, the STAR team is creating the, the tool, but it's like the people who pay for and manage, most of them are clinicians. Yeah, but that lady and then this chap without time. yep.
3: Hi Hi, thank you very much for your presentation. I've got two questions. speak um, up please
0: hold it right close.
3: Sure. I have two questions. The first is um, what are the success metrics for the start toolkit and the second is um, what are your implementation strategies? Do you uh,
4: push this, the toolkit from top down or bottom-up approach?
2: What
3: is your first question: um, how are you measuring the success of the star toolkit, and also what are your implementation strategies? Do you take a bottom up approach or top down approach in implementing same
2: yes oh difficult question like the evaluation of these has been is uh, our like kind of big research uh, question like how do you actually evaluate it because you need, how do you find a do you use a baseline? We tried to... Um, we developed several questionnaires, and we found out that it is extremely difficult for people to describe how are they, they are doing things now. So, our initial approach was, let's collect a, a baseline information about how decisions are taken and uh, what is the impact of their decision and then we intervene and so we might also have like a kind of a, a parallel process happening somewhere where decisions take place in the usual way and we see what is the difference we do a qualitative piece of research. And we find so far very, very hard to highlight how people are currently making decisions. They they, they say that they do what it was done last year, the copy best practice. It's very difficult to articulate. It's very varied. So the evaluation at the moment is a challenge. We have a um, um, couple of uh, papers describing some of the insight, but it's not a systematic evaluation as one might want to see. And for the implementation, we realized that one of the bottlenecks for us is somebody who can facilitate something like this, uh, it was uh, the feedback we got from um, uh, people who participated in workshop that came up with these uh, estimates and the value for money triangle was that it was very helpful to have somebody from outside. So for the example of COPD, there was no much tension because those were a group of uh, people with a common interest, like how, how can we improve the care of people with uh, COPD? When you work in a clinical commissioning group and resources are tight, immediately there is tension, like kind of, this is about protecting my budget. And having somebody from outside that is not representing a particular service locally was very valuable because uh, we were seen as neutral. Uh, at the moment, it can't be a group of like three people going around the country, so we are uh, devising a training program with uh, Sir Gray. And uh, we we'll see, like, if there is an uptake, the implementation strategy is to train the facilitators first with a mentoring program. So we will uh, explain the tool; they have to apply it in practice, and we act as mentor because if we do it, they, there is no learning. You learn by doing.
0: We haven't a bloody clue what's happening at the moment, so we can't evaluate improvement. We spend a billion, we spend a billion pounds on and We haven't a clue whether it's better in Somerset or Devon. Now, this is part of what we're trying to do. is to get something. Then you can say, well, is it better, and how do you measure it? But at the moment, it's just a lot of activity. It's not like ants. Ants are well-organised. It's just a lot of activity. It's like Brownian
5: motion at the moment. It's yes, amazing. Philip, Philip Thomas, uh, Safety Systems Research Center, Crystal Um And I congratulate the team on tackling uh, an important and very difficult problem. I think that it, uh, one of the problems that you face uh, is that you're looking to quantify subjective judgments, which is a difficult thing to do. Um, I say that the background to that, to this, is relevant to some of the figures that we produced. Uh, I've recently published papers which have shown that the UK value of a prevented fatality, which is linked to the quality, uh, is based on a method that is completely invalid. So no confidence can be placed in that figure, which is derived by a method uh, which is based on subjective. Judgments. So, what uh, um, it seems to me that you, you have a good uh, a, a problem, uh, and there are two two uh, things. One, I'd like to you might look at uh, the parameter, the economic parameter risk aversion, uh, in order to quantify judgments. Uh, the question I have uh, is: What sort of sensitivity do you think that your results will have to those judgments being quantified imperfectly?
1: Can I, uh, if I have the first go, Mara may want to add to that. I think that the um, the point I think the point you're making about the the quality is relates to the NICE threshold of £30,000 a quality, which NICE says they don't use rigidly. It's used as guidance. And I, I know there's controversy th- th- over where this number comes from. Now, the, the problem that NICE has is exactly that of horse and rabbit stew, which is the trouble is they measure the ratio of cost to quality but you don't know what you ought to implement in the NHS because we don't know what we currently achieve in the NHS. And there's recent work that Carl Claxton's done at York that suggested it should be more like £9,000 a quality. But the issue about all this, this is all done, in a sense, in a vacuum with these precise estimates against the rest of what goes on, which isn't quantified. We are not using that approach at all. Our, the basis of our methods is to say, look... And it goes back to an earlier question, which is this is all done low. I mean, there's work with COPT as one example where you can look at guidelines with a particular group. But in terms of how you move money around within an area, we want to work at the local level. So all the stakeholders are there. They can concretely see what the options are they're talking about. It's all very real for them. And we're just asking them to think about the relative benefits benefits of this intervention compared to that. There's an awful lot of research that we build on in terms of using psychology to make these measurements that show that comes up with with good values. In terms, the point that you make is, of course, a very important one, and I should have mentioned this, Um, is that these are judgmental numbers, and therefore there are margins of error associated with them. But what we typically find is... And the great advantage is we have an audit trail for the figures that we show that people can intuitively understand. There's an audit trail back to that, to these very simple sets of numbers, which is cost, benefit, and cost numbers and benefits. And we just subject them to sensitivity analysis. And because what we're looking at are things that are huge where the differences are large, sensitivity analysis doesn't change the shape of these figures. So we've had examples before. I mean, the one I really like is that we did this work in um, the Isle of Wight with Jennifer Smith, a key member of our research team, director of public health. And we prioritised public health interventions, and Jennifer did not like the outcome because her preferred intervention was not shown to be cost-effective. So she spent all evening trying to play around with the numbers to make sure that her intervention did become most... Good, but she failed to do that... And that's typically what comes comes through. I don't know if you want to add.
2: Yeah, we we are uh, like. We are working, the work we did so far was on highlighting the actual opportunity cost of a decision that was taking place on a particular, um, in this case is a pathway or for a particular guidance. So the assumption is that you have a budget to provide that particular series of interventions. And within that series of interventions, spending more on one intervention meant spending less on another one within that particular disease category. And uh, we, su- we work with margins of error, so we subjected it to a lot of sensitivity analysis. Of course, it might be that money is best spent in a different diseases. It's not something we touched upon. But because we made like head-to-head comparison, like kind of more resources in the- these particular services for this particular population, uh, the results we had for the cases that we looked so far are quite robust within the ranges. If I may up with a
5: specific supplementary, the triangles that you presented uh, were similar triangles yes. in fact um, and I'm just wondering if in that case what you're getting is that uh, everyone is let me say this provocatively you can tell mm-hmm. me I'm completely wrong that everyone is given a judgment one, 1 to 10 and they all mark them 5 uh, they are all coming up very similar I'm just wondering if that, that was a, possibly something at play
2: well no we didn't expect to come like the way we build this uh, triangle like we they didn't see the slope of the hypotenuse until it was shown so I don't, I, I don't expect any gaming on that no I don't, I don't think people were going along idea.
3: with the process and, uh, and uh, you know excel spreadsheets were being filled in and then we, when people saw the triangle they went oh well, hang on what does that mean then you know the it the wasn't back sophisticated, had been in yeah. the
0: at the back no.
6: Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So I, I was up on the screen earlier on. So I'm am a, a GP who worked on this team. Um, I I wanted to refer back to um, one of the earlier slides um, uh, that you presented around the uh, uh, women with eating disorders. Do you want to go back um, to... So sorry. sorry. Yeah. So do you want us to
1: show it the slide? Do you want to do you
6: want to show the slide? Is that what you'd like us? Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, you, well, the you ta- disorders. Yeah, the yeah. eating disorders. So you talked about the very expensive intervention, which was the inpatient stay, yeah. and then you could use the money from that to yeah. go to those which had high, higher value yeah, yeah. and they cost less. What, what I was thinking about is did you include in the costs? the the cost of implementing um, a growth in that particular area. So let's say that um, item two, which is very got very good value for money, doesn't cost very much, and it benefits a lot of the population. But actually, what it requires is a, a population of health workers who go into medical school or nursing school with the right values, and then you have to train them so they have the right conversations with those individuals, so that that story comes out, so that can diagnose it early enough and then get them into the right therapy. So actually the implementation cost could be actually huge and very long running. So do we really need to consider that when we're creating these triangles as well? And then I guess my other statement was um, uh, is NICE only doing half the job? So um, so NICE got us to the value pyramid, and then the work that you've done with the value for money triangles takes you on to the next bit. And actually what commissioners want, and I'm a commissioner, is what's the right spend for my 300,000 population? Um, what should I spend it on? And actually you don't get that with NICE. I'm obviously giving you a new job as well, so you can do that for them. But yeah, those are my comments.
2: So in terms of the implementation cost, no, we didn't. Like, we, ask, we work with what was feasible. So they have an idea of appointing a, a person with a particular skill set that is available today in the job market. But it's a, it's a good challenge. Like, it's true, many of these things require a change of mindset and, and, long, and long term. I don't think it's, it's going to show up in, uh, in this workshop. Uh,
4: yeah, we could maybe. do, uh,
0: we need to do some analysis of what we get for the five billion pounds we spend on education, but that's another.
5: Uh, <laughs> yeah. Hi. Um, I work in road maintenance, doing very similar stuff to you guys,
1: except in road treatments. But so we spend a lot of money on condition assessment and performance assessment of our network to understand prioritise. You guys kind of talked about having a lack of those measures
5: or a lack of systems to get those measures of, I guess, what the public health outcomes not outcomes so much, but the public health status is at the top so that you can direct these.
1: Is that monitoring process something that you'd like to see come out of sort of as a next step, and do you have any ideas on how you would implement that as
0: well? Have you got a card? You sound as though you're just ready for the start. <laughs> <laughs> These are the types of
2: So we we do think that the monitoring is important, and actually the work that we are doing on the diabetes. The idea is, can you embed this process in the commissioning cycle? So from thinking about where do we want to change the priorities, what would I expect to see different, how do I embed it in in a contract, and how do I monitor this is happening? Because at the moment, the the way we worked it, it was a kind of research initiative, to bring in some fresh thinking and so it happened at the strategic point in time but we had demands from the NHS in terms of can we embed it in the system and use it for monitoring like. and, and also to verify that our estimates were actually
4: accurate
0: Last question from um, this lady
4: I work in tax so I know nothing about health but I'm an economist and um, uh, when you were demonstrating these triangles, I started thinking about distributions because in tax, distributions are very important. you get big impacts from relatively small number of people and that really made me think sort of you, if you 're trying to assess these benefits you 'll get different points of view from different people, but you 'll also get different things happening within that you could get could you? Well, the question is: Could you get treatments that are um, work extremely well for some people and just not very good for others? And that made me think that maybe the real value in those qualities was might be answering the question, why? Why are we scoring it like this? Why are we scoring it differently from different stakeholders? And I wondered if that could just bring you that extra nuance in terms of something that... You're, you know, you, you you've got very qualitative judgments there, but understanding why people are saying it might be the you know the most useful thing, particularly on those pills that just appear to do nothing. Um, and so, why are people prescribing it is you know is there a sort of you know is there a chance that sort of one in a million that it might have a huge impact? I, I'm, I'm sure that's not the case, but do you see what I mean? We. That was certainly a lot of the discussion
3: about pulmonary rehabilitation as an example, because um, the guidance is, and the evidence is only for people with quite severe disease, but intuitively that doesn't seem right. Why would you wait until somebody's really breathless before you offer them education about their disease and physical activity? It, it didn't feel right. But, and so we were a bit constrained by the evidence, but people did say, okay, so... We firstly had to think about what the population segments were. So we we came up with undiagnosed, mild to moderate disease and severe disease we spent a lot of time thinking was that the best way and then we tried to describe a person that would look like that and that was quite interesting because that did um, surface assumptions about what somebody with mild disease might look like or sound like or how old they'd be and so lots of judgments were revealed at that point but I think that um, what we ended up doing with the mild to moderate disease was saying okay well we can't can't put pulmonary rehabilitation in because there is no evidence for it but we must put physical activity in and we then we looked at a different evidence base, um, but it was left with a lot of questions, saying it still feels like a bit of a nonsense that you, you, know, you, you, you can't get this really good package of education and, and physical activity until you're really sick. Um, so I think we, we wrestled with some of that.
0: Well, it's it's uh, important to appreciate where we are. Uh, the... If you ask people in mental health, how much do we spend in mental health, and we tell them we spend five billion pounds on respiratory in the room, the very senior people, the guesses are from most think it's one to three billion, it's eleven billion pounds. People have no idea at that level. Um, secondly, if you ask our local level, you ask respiratory physician, for example, I should think we spend on respiratory disease in Somerset. They they're anywhere from 20 to 60 million pounds. They have no idea. We have 5, 10, 40 fold variation in clinical practice, all by people who think that they're, they're doing the right thing. Uh, so these are just some of the, the problems that we're trying to address. And in some ways, it's just moving people from uh, just bidding for more resources to get them to think in a a little way about what's going on. So it it is an early stage in what we're doing, but uh, the momentum is quite considerable now, and this approach and the sort of questions you're raising about sensitivity, people in healthcare have never asked this at all. Health economics has been way over there in the long grass and uh, the feeling that we are responsible with. Stewardship is probably the key term... Stewardship, which is very hard to translate into other languages, I found. Stewardship is to hold something in trust, particularly for for others and for another generation. And what we're saying, if you were all clinicians, is, ladies and gentlemen, you are the stewards of the NHS. If you screw it up, there won't be one. Now, what does that mean? It means starting to take this approach. But it is uh, people are really enumerate and inarticulate and don't have these concepts. So uh, many other disciplines like your own safety, I know it's very difficult, but it's it's quite far in advance. Safety practitioners are quite far in advance of what we're trying to do. So here we've got a leading edge team um, based in uh, London and Oxford. Here we are in LSE, that great institution. I'd like to join me in thanking our speakers and just to announce, this is part of the LSE works these are public lectures the next one is on the, let to get the terms right I don't know know what the acronym means that's the The challenge,
1: the acronym that's the challenge the the,
0: the acronym, the next one is on the TTIP um, Jan Klein Heisterkamp that's the this new um, Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership which has got big implications for lots of different people and that is on 30, the 12th of February also at 6.30 yes. uh, here in the Hong Kong, Hong Kong Lecture Theatre. There must be some reason for <laughs> that. I can't, I can't think why.
1: Yeah. I mean. <laughs> uh,
0: so uh, it's been fantastic and these people are doing very, very important work. And But the best thing is, you know, people... Uh, enjoy it. The the citizens and the clinicians, they're they're starting to talk about some of which they know there's no language. But openness and transparency are key. And this is a means of showing openness and and transparency. There is no perfect answer for these things. These are hellish decisions. Norman Daniels very nicely writes that what people are looking for is accountability for reasonableness. You just have to be reasonable and explain to people. Well, this is why it is here. I know it's different somewhere else, but um, we're here. We can see. But this is this is the reason. So, this is terrific. And uh, thank you all very much. So, thank you.